Well, once again, good morning, and it is good to have all of you worshiping with us this morning. And I just also want to acknowledge that we have all of our kids in here with us this morning. Most of the time, they are over there worshiping in their own uh, kids' own worship and their own uh, worship service over there. But on the fifth Sundays of the month, they come in here with us. And so, kids, I just want to welcome you to being a part of our service today. You are a valued and loved part of our membership and our body here at Ivy Creek. And let me just say this to all the adults that may be sitting out there. If you see a little fidgeting going on this morning, and if you maybe hear a little talking, and there may be even some rattling of some paper, just be good with it, okay? Just be okay with it, because this being in here and being a part of that is so important for them. Because you know what? We are a you-all family, and that you-all, it means we are part, even our kids, this is a part of our church family. And so I think even the reminder is you might hear some of the shuffling going on and maybe hear some of the, you know what? That's just a reminder that we've got a whole bunch of those around here, and you know how much I love them. And so I'm excited that they're here and a part of our church family and a part of our service this morning. So parents, just sit at ease. Be okay. It's all good. It's all good. We are glad that all of you are here. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn them to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to continue our series that we began last week where we asked the question, who are we? And that's the question that's before us. Who are we? And, and you'll see there in your bulletin, we've got a statement that declares who we are. We are you all, gospel first, servant-hearted, family of believers that want our lives to count for the glory of God. And over the course of this series that we're going to look through, we're going to kind of deconstruct that sentence Reverse engineer it, if we might, and just look at the individual parts. Last week, we looked at what it meant to be a you-all family. And what we determined was, is that if we come into this place, we know that we're a very diverse family. We're, 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 we've got a lot of differences among us, a lot of different passages, that, places that we came from, how we got here, the whole nine yards. We're a diverse family. But what we also know is that as a you-all family of believers, we are united together in the fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, we might be diverse. We are. But we're unified together by the unifier, the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who through his gospel has brought us together as a family. And so that's who we are. If you weren't here, or maybe you want to go back and check that out again, I would encourage you to do so. You can go to our website. There's ways that you can listen to it there, watch it again. I would encourage you to do that because I think it's foundational as we move forward to help us understand how this series is going to progress. Today, however, what I want us to do is look at that next part of that sentence. And I want us to, as the title of today's sermon indicates, I want us to think about what it means to be a gospel-first family. And, and, and in doing that, what I want to do is back up and revisit some of, some of what we looked at last week, uh, beginning actually in verse 3 and reading down through verse 27. It's a significant passage of Scripture, but I think it's important that we look at it all together in one, in one large chunk. So begin reading with me there in verse 3. Hear what the Apostle Paul writes to the church there in Philippi. He says this, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always and in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a work, good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how I greatly long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. 
And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in the Lord. And most in Christ and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident of my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, most sincerely, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh... This will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you for your love. God, I just want to stop right now and just take a moment and pray for those that are in harm's way. Uh, Lord, uh, there are our brothers and sisters that are in the country of Afghanistan who are in harm's way right now. There are those who are suffering, uh, who are desiring to, to get out of that country, and yet... Lord, the, the, the promise of that or the, the, the hope of that seems very slim. Father, I know that some of our brothers and sisters that are in that part of the world, people we've never met, do not know in this life, though we will spend an eternity with them, and I know that they face great peril and great danger right now. So I lift them up to you. You promise in your word that there is never a valley that we will go through. There is never a dark place that we will ever enter, that you will not be there. So I pray that that will be their assurance right now, that they will sense the very presence of your Holy Spirit comforting them. Lord, there are those in our own, in our own military who donned the uniform of this, of this United States government in this country who have lost their lives. Father, I know that their families are just grieving right now. I lift them up to you in their pain. I ask for you to bring comfort to them as only you can provide them. Father, it's a situation that goes far beyond my ability to understand, but I know that even in the pain and in the struggle and in the, the trauma that is all being experienced, that God, that you, you can use this for, the, for your glory and ultimately for their good and for our good and for the good of the gospel. So I pray for that. God, there are those that are facing imminent danger right now in Louisiana and along the Gulf Coast because of this hurricane that is coming through. Father, it's barreling in on them and Father, I know that many of them sense that despair and that panic and that fear because there's nothing that they can do. But Lord, I pray when they reach out to you that they will sense the comfort of your Holy Spirit. I pray for your protection. 
I ask God that you might bring, uh, bring the circumstances to not being nearly as bad as is being predicted. I ask that you would protect those that are in harm's way. I pray that you would give them peace in the midst of this horrible storm as it barrels down upon them. And Father, I also recognize even with that image in my mind that there are many who are in this room right now who sense that exact same fear and panic of a different kind of storm barreling into their lives. It could be health-related, all other kinds of things that could be coming along. I know that there are those, even my own friends this week, who have lost loved ones. And Father, they are just overwhelmed by the grief that comes with that. Lord, I just know that as we gather in this room that there are broken hearts and there are hearts that are looking to you for answers and we're reaching out to you. And I know that your word promises that you'll never leave us or forsake us. So I pray that you will be that. Be the balm to our open wounds. And God also be the one that we can cling to in the midst of very difficult and trying times. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for being who you are. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. As is my practice here, I'm, I'm, I'm providing you this morning with just some words for us to hang our thoughts on, some hooks that we can hang thoughts on as we work our way through this passage. And so I'm just going to go right into it. The first one I want to give you this morning is passion. The first word on your outline this morning is passion. You know, when we read this passage that I read for you earlier, the, the thing that I think is, becomes abundantly clear is that Paul was passionate about the church in Philippi. In fact, according to verse 3, every time he thought of them and they came to his mind, he was thankful. He also says in verse 3 that every time he prayed, he did so joyfully, and he did so every prayer that he voiced, he mentioned the Philippian church in his prayer to God. Down in verse 7, he speaks of the deep feelings that he had for the church. And then he tells them that, that, that he had them in his heart. That's the kind of language of someone who is passionate about others. And then in verse 8, he tells them how much he yearned and longed for them with the affection of Jesus. Paul's, Paul's words just drip with passion for the church there in Philippi. And here's where I think it would be good for us to just be reminded of, of his circumstances and, and understand why he was so passionate for this church. When Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, it's good for us to remember that when he composed it, he was sitting in a jail cell. He was imprisoned and incarcerated for preaching the gospel. In fact, he refers to his chains. He refers to his imprisonment there in verse 7. You'll see it. You'll see it again in verse 13, verse 14, and in verse 16. You'll see him talk about his chains or his imprisonment as the ESV translates it. He also refers in verse 13 to the palace guards. Those were the Roman soldiers who not only guarded the, the Roman praetorium there in the city of Rome, but they also had the responsibility of guarding prisoners who were, on, who were being held awaiting trial from Caesar. So Paul's incarceration is what looms behind this letter that he writes to the Philippian church. And, and we might expect that his circumstances would, would cause him to be, to be unenthusiastic and even negative. I mean, after all, when a person was, was awaiting trial and they were incarcerated back in those days, not only were they chained to a guard for 24 hours a day and they had their freedom completely taken from them, they had to figure out a way to pay their own rent for the jail cell in which they were in. They had to provide the money for their own uh, food. They had, to, they had to take care of their own needs. And how was one supposed to do that when they were chained and in prison? Well, obviously, Paul had to have some support from outside, which is exactly what we see occur between the Philippian church and Paul. 
Later in this letter, we go on to find out that that the members of this church in Philippi, when they learned of Paul's, uh, when they learned of his imprisonment, they took up a special offering for him. And they, they commissioned a man named Epaphroditus to take that money to him in Rome and then to stay with him and to care for Paul and to help take care of his needs. In other words, the Philippian church selfishly and sacrificially stood by Paul to help alleviate his suffering. And therefore, at least one of the purposes of the letter to the Philippian church was for Paul to say thank you. It, it was a way for him to express his heartfelt love and his appreciation for their kindness and for their generosity. So we recognize clearly that Paul is passionate about this church in Philippi. Now, now just hang on to that. Hang on to that word passion for a few moments in your minds as we continue in this text. Because I think what we're going to see is that Paul was not only just passionate about the church there in Philippi. He was even more passionate about the gospel. In fact, the next hook on your outline alerts us to that passion that Paul had for the gospel. Notice the second word that I want you to see this morning is this. It's the word partnership. Partnership. We've just noted that Paul's passion for the church in Philippi is at least partially based upon the partnership that they had with him, a partnership that was demonstrated by the support that they had provided him. But if we go back and look at verse 5, we will actually see that, that the underlying and more important reason for Paul's passion for the church was because they, he, of the partnership that he enjoyed with this church for the sake of the gospel. In fact, he says there... He talks about the fact that, that they had fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And that, let me point out that that Greek word fellowship is, is the word koinonia in Greek. It's a word which means communion together. It's a word that means to participate in something together. The same root of that word koinonia is found down also in verse 7 in the word that is translated as partners. Paul there talks about the Philippian church being or partakers, being partakers with him in the gospel. Same Greek root word of koinonia. And the point that Paul uses, is wanting to make by using this word, is that with these, this church, it was being, they were, they were committed to the gospel ministry that Paul was committed to. One commentator put it this way, these Philippian believers were not ashamed or intimidated by Paul's imprisonment, but helped to alleviate his needs and so cooperated with him in the defense and the propagation of the gospel. Now, I want us to consider, just for a moment, I want us to think about the biblical concept of koinonia. You see, when, when, when Paul uses his words, he's not so much describing a partnership with someone. You realize we can be in partnership together. We can, we can create a partnership in which all of us bring a little to the table. Everybody here just pulls a little bit of their resources of whatever those things may be, and we bring a little slice of that and we put it together. And then whatever all of us put together, we look at that, that becomes the 100%. That's being in partnership with someone. Paul is looking at it from a different angle. He's looking at it more being partners in something. There's a difference. To be partners in something means that everybody brings 100% of what they got and they push it to the middle of the table and everybody is all in on what's happening. It's like yesterday, well, I spent time out watching my son play football yesterday. You can tell from my tan lines that that's, matter of fact, look at this one. It's like a sun rising on a sandy beach. I'm on the sidelines watching my son play football yesterday. 
Now let me explain something to you. When you're playing football, there's 11, there's 11 kids out there on offense and 11 kids out on defense. You know what? There's not a bunch of individuals. They are a team. They are all putting all of their effort in at one time to either move the ball this direction or for the other team to stop them from moving the ball that direction. It's an all-in process. It's a partnership with one another where someone gives everything that they've got. It's wholehearted, energetic, Active and consistent engagement in the accomplishment of a goal. When Paul speaks about the Philippian church being in fellowship in the gospel, he's not talking, listen, he is not talking about being part of a cozy Christian club. He's not speaking about an occasional interest shown in Christian things out of a sense of duty. He's not speaking about a one-hour-a-week religion that you practice on Sunday mornings. When Paul talks about the fellowship here, this partnership in the gospel, he is using this word in such a way to describe the full-time commitment to lock arms with him and with each other for the advancement of the gospel. Unfortunately, I think that that kind of partnership and specifically that term fellowship, as it's translated there in verse 5, is often misunderstood. So often the word fellowship is used in the context of having a cup of coffee with a, with a fellow believer, maybe going to lunch, having a burger with a fellow Christian. We even use it in Christian circles sometimes. We talk about having a, a fellowship social. The reality is, however is that true Christian fellowship is more like the experience that one shares with others when they are locked arm and arm together in labor for the gospel, partnering with one another, serving together for the common cause. And listen, such a fellowship, such a partnership can be costly. It cost the Philippian church because they took up money that they needed for themselves to push toward Paul and for the advance before he could, be, he could have his needs met. Not to mention that they were, they were Roman citizens. And Paul was a prisoner of Rome. And so for them to take an active role in supporting a, 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 a prisoner of, of Rome put them in harm's way. It put them in a place where their reputations were at stake. I want you to know when you begin to partner with others, particularly for the sake of the gospel, well, it can certainly cost you as well. And if we as a church are going to be united together in the fellowship of the gospel, then we must be willing to sacrifice. True fellowship in the gospel will always cost us something. It's going to require the contribution of resources, be that your, your time, be it your resources, your finances. It's going to require you to utilize the talents that God has equipped you with for the glory of God and for His honor. It will require you to lock arms with others, sometimes those others are not going to be as easy to get along with as others that you come along with. But you are able to put that aside because you recognize that the most important thing is that the gospel goes out unhindered. And so we serve and we participate wholeheartedly and energetically and actively and consistently in the ministries of the church. That's what it means to be in fellowship and to be in partnership with one another for the sake of the gospel. So in light of that, let me get you to ask yourself a question. As you are honest with yourself and before God, ask yourself this. Am I truly in partnership with others for the sake of the gospel? Or is my fellowship 
Is, is my fellowship more social in nature? Brothers and sisters, I believe that if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, if the gospel is truly going to be a first priority in our lives individually and in our lives collectively as a church, then we must recognize that the gospel is the hub around which all of us must come together and join our collective energies. So the first two hooks are passion and partnership, which brings us to the third hook, and it's the word prayer. Notice beginning in verse 9 that Paul tells these Philippian believers how he prays for them. He's already said he prays for them. Every time he prays, he mentions the Philippian believers. Then he tells us, this is how I pray for you. I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, now some have compared this prayer that Paul prays here to like an assembly line in which Paul prays for believers at the beginning of their point of faith and, and all the way to their place of maturity. And he begins his prayer by asking God to, to provide the Philippians with abounding love, with love that just increases more and more and more. And it's a, that kind of love is intentional in showing kindness and, and generosity toward others. It's not a static love. It's a love that grows. And it's a love that is discerning with, with, and knowledgeable. It's able to make wise assessments and, and clear right decisions. But then Paul prays that such abundant love will, will lead these believers to approve the things that are excellent. In other words, what Paul's prayer is, it assumes is that if we are controlled by the love of God in our lives, you know what? We will also desire to live according to God's will. If God's love really reigns in our hearts and in our lives and it's growing every day, we're going to desire to live according to the will of God and how we respond and how we act and how we treat others around us. And then, as these believers continue to move down that pipeline, Paul then, he, he says they will find themselves living a life of integrity. Notice he says they will be sincere and without offense. In other words, as we mature in Christ, we will, be, we will not be satisfied with sin in our lives. We will not be satisfied with simply living a half-hearted Christian life that only dabbles in obedience. No, our goal then will be to progress in holy living, that we will be sincere and without offense. And then finally, in his prayer, Paul envisions that these believers will be filled to overflowing with the fruits of righteous living. In other words, their works and their deeds will demonstrate their maturity and the fact that God is working in their lives. And then he says all of this, every last bit of it is done for the praise and the glory of God. I always want you to know that that's just, just you, you should go back and delve into that prayer deeper and deeper because that's all that I can time that I can devote to it this morning. But I want you to know that is an amazing prayer. In fact, this week, as I reflected on that prayer that Paul prayed, I was convicted about my own prayers. I was convicted about how puny my prayers often are, how need based my prayers are, how selfish my prayers often are. Don't get me wrong. The Bible tells us that we're to come to the Lord with our needs. When there are things that are, we're, we're struggling with, 
be it our health, our finances, our relationships, the circumstances that were going on in our lives. If, if it's important to us, God said, cast your cares upon me because I care for you. So, so don't hear me saying that needs-based prayers are bad. I'm not saying that at all. I think we're commanded to bring our, our cares to the Lord. But how often do our prayers for ourselves and for others leave out the critically important request for spiritual maturity? How often do we pray that God's love would so fill our hearts and the minds of those with whom we partner that we would turn loose of the ways of the world and that we would reject any sinful and prideful way and live totally and completely sold out to Jesus? How often do our prayers approach that? How often do we pray that the fruits of the Spirit will be produced and on full display in our lives and in the lives of fellow believers? How often do we ask God to remove the things that distract us from living a life on mission for Christ? Because we're afraid to pray for those things so often because it's the very things that we're clutching and holding on to so tightly that we know God may come in and carve away. But those kind of prayers are the kind of prayers that you see Paul praying and you see mature. And let me say this, too often I confess to you that my prayers fall far short of the example set by the apostles. Too often they're self-centered and they're need-based rather than Christ-centered and gospel-based. But prayer that is passionate about others and passionate about the gospel, prayer that seeks to link arms with other arms for the fellowship and participation of the gospel, that kind of prayer will beg God to produce spiritual maturity in ourselves and in others. And I want you to know there are some of you out there who pray those kind of prayers. In fact, I was made aware of it just this week. There are people, some of you in this room, there are others who are, who are praying in this service, for this service right now, who, who get together to be unfettered and unhindered in voicing prayers for yourselves, but as I have been made aware, not just for yourselves, but for the staff of this church, for me personally, for my family, for the ministry of this church, that the gospel message will go out unhindered. And I just want you to know, I will never be able to adequately express how humbled I am by that and how appreciative I am of those kind of prayers. The kind of gospel prayers that partners with one another for the sake of the gospel, just as Paul prayed here. I want you to know I'm thankful for it and I would just simply ask you to continue to. That leads me to consider what Paul writes about next. We've already noted Paul's passion for the church in Philippi, but then beginning in verse 12, we recognize that as passionate as Paul were for those, was for these Philippian believers, he was even more passionate about the proclamation of the gospel. That's the fourth, that's the fourth hook that you have there on your outline. It's proclamation. Consider once again this situation. Paul is incarcerated. He's locked up to, a, to a, a Roman soldier. This is the same man who declared in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2 that I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the same man who wanted to spend his entire life doing nothing but being on the go, sharing the gospel, establishing churches, evangelizing, sharing Jesus with people. And now instead of being able to be out there doing that, he's in here in this cell and he's being locked up. And I want you to know that would probably cause somebody like me to want to, to just say, you know, 
I, I'm, I'm in a bad mood. This, this is not going the way that I want it to go. I'd probably get down in the mouth. But when you read the book of Philippians, all you hear pouring out of Paul is joy, 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 joy. How can a man who has been incarcerated for preaching the gospel experience joy? Here's where I need you to notice something. You see, when your overarching passion is the gospel, when you desire nothing more than to see the message of the gospel impact people's lives, then your, then your, your perspective of your circumstances will change and you will begin to see how God can use your circumstances for his glory. In fact, notice what Paul says in verse 12. He declares it. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. You catch that? He declared that even though his chains, no doubtful, were painful for him, and no doubt his incarceration was stifling, something significant and something important and something awesome and something necessary was being accomplished. And he tells them that all of those things that had happened to him were actually causing the advancement of the gospel. How did that happen? Well, historians suggest that the palace guards that were guarding him would take four to six hour shifts sitting next to Paul, either being chained directly to him or in the same room so that they could watch him the entire time. And every day, Paul would tell these men about this Jewish Messiah who had come from heaven's throne down to earth. And he came to live a perfect, sinless, holy life, a life that those men had never lived and a life that Paul had never lived. But he was crucified on a Roman cross in Jerusalem. And his crucifixion bore fact to the fact that he had come to be a substitutionary atonement. He had come to be the sacrificial lamb. The one who would live a perfect life would also die a perfect death so that those who were sinners could place their faith in him, come to faith in Christ, and be gifted with eternal life and one day have the ability to be in heaven with God forever and forever and forever. And he told them about it day after day after day after day after day. And you know, some of those guys probably are thinking, this dude's crazy. How in the world can he be excited? He's living in this dark, dank prison cell. But I bet you after a while it got them to thinking and scratching their head and going, I don't know what to do with somebody like this. Somebody who is so impassioned by the gospel that they tell me about it all the time. I would be miserable if I were in that scenario, but he's not miserable. He's filled with joy. I can't understand it. What is it about him that is so different? I want some of that in my life. And here's how I think some of that began to happen. They went back to their barracks after they'd get off work and they'd try to close their eyes and Jesus would infiltrate their dreams and in their minds and they would start hearing all of Paul's words. You tell me who the prisoner was in that Roman prisoner cell. Was it Paul or was it those, those Roman soldiers? And as the Spirit of God began to work with them, they began to, they came, to, came to the point of repentance and salvation and they began to tell others. And it began to move on. And I want you to know, he made all of those guards realize that he was a prisoner there, not of Caesar. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And he was glad of it. And he was willing to tell them about his chains. That's not all though. Verse 14 tells us to the Philippians and the other believers who lived... In Rome, those other believers there, they having heard of what Paul was going through, it made them more bold to preach the gospel themselves. Because of what Paul was going through, they experienced 
power in their own life. If he can do that in, the, in a prison cell, I'm out here free walking around. Why can't I go and be more bold in sharing the gospel message? And Paul tells us that's exactly what happened and the proclamation of the gospel continued. But then notice that the advancement of the gospel didn't stop there. According to verse 15, we read that there were evidently some believers in Rome who just plain out didn't like Paul. There were some preachers there that were jealous of him. Maybe it was because his, his reputation or his, uh, everything had gotten bigger than, than, than theirs was. And, and, and I know you may find it hard to believe that preachers can sometimes be that way. You can go ahead and nod. I, I, I get it. But he says here that there, the gospel message was being preached, some with good reasons and good motives, but there were some who were preaching the gospel out of bad motives. He says specifically they were preaching from envy and strife in order to add affliction to his chains. Now, that, that's hard for us to come to grips with, but setting aside the specifics of it for a moment, listen to what Paul says. It doesn't matter to me if they're preaching for that reason or for the right reason. He's not getting into whether it was right or wrong. He's just simply saying the most important thing for me is that Christ is being preached. The most important thing for me is that, is that whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Paul was passionate about the proclamation of the gospel. And so long as the true gospel of Jesus Christ was being preached, even if the motives were bad, he didn't care. He rejoiced that Jesus and the message of the gospel was being loudly proclaimed. And I want you to know what we learn about Paul is incredibly instructive for us, both individually and as a church. You see, I believe that when the advancement of the gospel and the, excuse me, and the good news of Jesus becomes our utmost and highest priority in life, I believe then that the challenges and the struggles that we face will, will not ultimately be able to erode the joy that we are given. Because our joy comes from the fact that through, through our partnership with others in the gospel, Jesus will be magnified and his kingdom will continue to advance. And furthermore, we recognize that, that through our perseverance, men, women, boys and girls will come to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And therefore, I believe that both as individuals in this church, our passion and our partnership and our prayers must center around the gospel and we must remain completely committed to its proclamation. Now, I want to hurry to, the, to my conclusion because I know my time is gone. But I just want to give you a sense of what happens in that last paragraph there. You go back and research it for yourself. I want you to know Paul's waiting for this trial to come. And he doesn't know what's going to happen. He didn't know what Caesar's going to rule. He, neither did the people. Nobody at the time of the writing of this letter knew what was going to be the outcome of the trial that awaited the Apostle Paul. And so he asked for the Philippian church to pray for him in verse 19. Now I can tell you, if this was me, and I was writing a letter to you because I was in prison and I was waiting to find out what my results were going to be of the trial, I'd tell you what I was going to pray for. Pray that I get out. Pray that he turns me loose. I want to get out of this place. I want to do it. Please pray for me that I will be released. I want you to know if you look closely, that's not what the Apostle Paul prays for though. Paul, rather than asking for, for deliverance from prison, prays that the Spirit of Jesus, he said, pray for me that the Spirit of Jesus will come and give me the strength I need to be the faithful witness to my accusers and before the Roman emperor. 
And he says this, he believes that such a faithful testimony will turn out for my deliverance. Not he's saying that will turn out for my deliverance from prison. What he's saying will turn out for my deliverance because as I stand before God, I want to be vindicated from him, by him for faithfully proclaiming the gospel even in this situation and circumstance. In fact, we see that even more clearly according to verse 20. He says it was his earnest expectation and hope that in nothing he would be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul had no idea which way it was going to turn out. All he knew was when the moment came, he was asking for prayers that the spirit of Jesus would embolden him to be as faithful in sharing the gospel at that moment as he had been in all those other moments prior in his life. So once again, we see that the proclamation of the gospel is what motivated Paul. And his overarching passion was to see Jesus magnified. And then he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I could spend all day right there on that passage and on that verse. But I want you to notice this. Paul recognized that something greater was in store for him. He recognized that there was a reality that he was going to that far surpassed anything he ever experienced in this life. He knew that one day, regardless of what took place, if he, by life or by death, he was one day going to be in the presence of Jesus. It was his hope. It was his steadfast confidence. And because that was the case, you know what? He didn't have any fear of death. He had no fear of dying because that death was going to usher him right into the presence of Christ. He also had no fear of living. You realize sometimes we live in fear of living because of what's coming. He had no fear of living. He knew who was in control. He knew who was the one who, who had, had created it all and brought us into this place. He had no fear of life. He had no fear of death. And when you take a believer who no longer fears living and he no longer fears death, you can turn that person loose with the power of the gospel and they will go and proclaim it without hindrance. And I want you to know that's what I want to be. I want to be one who's unhindered in sharing the gospel. I want to be one who's been turned loose to talk about Jesus in every context with every person that I come in contact with. I want you to know I'm not perfect in that. We just told you multiple times this morning, you don't have a perfect pastor. I just admitted to you, my prayer life is not perfect. I will admit to you that my sharing Jesus is not perfect, but I want to become more of a passionate person to keep doing it. I'm looking for those opportunities. I'm looking for those engagements that I can seek out, whether it be on the ball field, whether it be at the place that I go to buy something over it. I'm looking for those opportunities. And I want you to know as God gives them to me, I want you to pray for me that the spirit of Jesus will give me the power and the boldness to step forward into that moment and share Christ. Not out, of, not out of duty, not out of some sort of feeling as if, if I don't do this, I can't ever stand before you. No, but out of a sense of love and passion for the gospel because it is the only thing that will change life. It is the only thing that changed my life and it will be the only thing that will change your life. That's what I want you to pray for me. And I think that as you do that, you will enter into a partnership with me and I will enter into a partnership with you that keeps the proclamation of the gospel first and foremost in our lives. So as we bring this to a close this morning, let me ask you, what does it mean to be a gospel first family? What does it look like? What will it mean for us to be gospel first? Well, my sermon in a sentence is this. When the gospel becomes our overarching passion, the gospel partnership becomes our goal. 
then our prayers will become focused on the proclamation of the gospel and the results it produces. That's what I think it means to be a gospel first family. Committed body of believers who determined to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. We lock arms with one another to see the advancement of the gospel message go forth and change lives, to change our lives, to change the lives of our family, to change the lives of our community, and to change the lives of our world. So let me ask you, is the gospel, is it the overarching priority in your life? Do you desire more than anything else to make Jesus known? I want you to know that in order for you to do that effectively, you have to know him yourself. The gospel declares that every single sinner who will by faith fall on their face before Jesus, humbly admitting their, humbly admitting their sin, and asking him to save them, he will do it. and He will become your savior and your Lord. That is what it means to come to know him personally. Then as that growth continues, you become one who becomes passionate about that good news. If you've never done that before, if you've never committed your life to Christ, if you've never trusted in him, in just a moment, when we sing our hymn of invitation, Pastor Ted, Pastor Dave, I'm going to be up front. If you've never done that, just slip out. Come grab one of our hands. Say, I just want to know who, I want to know Jesus. I want some of that passion in my life. Nobody's going to look down upon you for that. You come and you grab our hands. We'll talk to you further after this service. There's nothing that is more important to us than that. Maybe you're here and you've done that. But you're honest and you say, you know what? The gospel is not as important to me as as it ought to be. I'm not as passionate about it as I should be. Then today really would be a day of recommitment for you today. It should be a day in which you decide, you know what? If everything that we've been hearing here as we've been going through this is true, and if the gospel is as good a news as it, as it is for me, then I've got to make it a higher priority in my life. And today becomes a day of recommitment for you. The day where you decide from this point forward, I'm going to pray that my life will mature and that I'm going to look for opportunities that I can be more effective in my gospel presentation and proclamation to those around me. I want you to know none of us are perfect. We repeat that again and again and again. When we ask the question, who are we? The word perfect doesn't show up in any of those definitions. Brothers and sisters, we can be a gospel first family. We can be a people that decide that the gospel is more important to us than anything else. And we're going to lock arms with those who are around us to make sure that the gospel is made known to those with whom are we in our context here and those outside these walls. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for being so good and kind and gracious to us. We're undeserving of it. Nothing we could ever do to earn it. And yet you have come to be our Savior, to save us from our sins, to provide us with an eternity, a home in heaven with you. And you've commissioned us to go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You've promised us, according to Acts 1.8, the boldness of the Holy Spirit when we go to fill us with the words that we need and the boldness that we need to be that, that one who proclaims the good news. Thank you that 
that we're a part of this church family. That, Lord, there's such a, such a love for and such a desire for the gospel. And I pray that you would continue to convince us of its power and its absolute priority in our lives. I ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.